bum bum bottom 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 bum
And this uh, person who was sitting on one of those benches outside our Starbucks was like, hey, John Popper. And he looked completely starstruck. Like he was like lit up. John Popper, he's here in front and, of me. And I, I tell that man, well, first, I, I watched a lot of VH1 back in the early aughts, and I knew exactly who he was talking about, Blues Traveler, if you, you don't know. You did a lot of running around, Lisa? I, I did a certain amount of running around, <laughs> mostly on my couch watching VH1. But, like, I just get this feeling of, like, hot self-conscious terror, because I know that that is not the flattering comparison that Brad is looking for oh, when but people thankfully, mistake him. Thankfully, Lisa, I have no idea who John Popper is. I mean, I know Blues Traveler, but I didn't listen to Blues Travel the way that you obsessed over Blues Traveler. I did not obsess over Blues Traveler. Uh, I'm just saying, you know, you, when you heard John Popper, you knew immediately who I it was. Did. And I did it, and I turned to Lisa, I was like, uh, who's John Popper? And also, sir, I'm not John Popper. I'm just a guy in a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> yeah. And so Brad is like, who's John Popper? And I'm being like shifty. <laughs> <laughs> As we walk back. And I was like, and I also couldn't pull the words blues traveler from the back of my brain. So I was like going like, I don't know, harmonicas, 90s. I was like, you? Lisa, take out your phone, pull up John Popper. Let me see it, John and Popper. I'm like, no, I will not do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then Lisa brought up John Popper and I went, blues traveler. Traveler, I'm Blues Traveler. It ruined Brad's day. We're laughing about it now, but like just throughout the day, dejected and sad, he was just like, Blues You know Traveler. what? Here's the thing, though. After thinking about it for uh, 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 many, many days, uh, I, I should be so lucky to be John Popper, right? Uh, honestly, you walk around with such charisma. <laughs> Nobody is mistaking me for anybody that they admire. I was trying to figure out what really, like, associates my body and face with John Popper's body and face. And I was wearing a Hawaiian shirt, but, like, is John Popper known for wearing Hawaiian shirts? at the? And I, I had cargo shorts on. I don't know. Is don't... it my sweat? Swagger. I, I, like, to me, I don't think that there's any gold to be found in really getting to the bottom of that comparison. Um, I think what we really need is um, a Queer Eye reboot on our self-esteem just as human beings. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Where we, like, when somebody makes a comparison about the way we look, we always go to the most negative... Connotation, um, connotation. Yeah. Like, like, so I definitely think, you know, when I watch Queer Eye, I try to apply all the things that they're talking about in those episodes and like, okay, how can I Queer Eye myself? Um, and, and I think that is kind of what we try to do here on Comic Book Couples Counseling. At the same time, my biggest takeaway from the John Popper thing is, and as we discussed in the last saga session, you know, I've been compared to a whole wide range of people. Like for whatever reason, people see me and they want to go like, you look like X. You look like someone who is accomplished and famous. Yes, yes, yes. And with charisma. I, I should be very satisfied with that. But my actual takeaway from it is when you see somebody out on the street and you're like, that dude looks like Josh Brolin or like uh, that dude looks like John Candy. Don't be like, oh, you look like John Candy. Just don't be comparing people to other people. Yeah, the, the, uh, the difference with the John Popper situation is that guy looked like the biggest blues traveler fan and he was thrilled to be in yeah, your presence. Yeah, he like that one was what that's what was so shocking because when he was like, John Popper, I mean, he lit up like 
like, like he was about to have the best day of his life. Mm -hmm. And then I had to say like, no, my name's Brad. <laughs> I'm not who this John Popper fella. Also, Lisa, who's John Popper? And then, you know, we just took you through that whole process. Yeah. I mean, the closest I, I have is that time we were at Sundance and there was a woman who was in one of the movies who did just coincidentally look a lot like me. Mm -hmm. And they were not terribly uh, impressed that I could have possibly been in that independent film. You know what's happened on Twitter this week is with the release of The Ghost in You, the Reckless book, people have compared you to Sean Phillips' illustration of Anna. Yeah, because it's a lady in glasses. Well, yeah, and, you, and you got like that same kind of haircut. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, you know, they, I would love to play Anna. Yeah, she is way yeah, cooler than yeah. me. Yeah. And she's also, though, I'm not going to say it, not going to say it, not going to say it. I, I would be love. I would love to be John Popper. I would love to be John Popper. <sighs> OK, so we've worked <laughs> out some of my feelings that occurred this week. And uh, I think that's a little bit of a sequel to our banter conversation from the last session. I hope you enjoyed it. And Elliot, if you're listening, uh, don't do John Popper Brad fan art. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so it's time, everyone. Uh, we got to talk about Saga Volume 9, the end of Marco and Alana's relationship, the tragic end of Marco and Alana's relationship. Lisa, you knew that, and guys, if you have not read this comic yet, Saga 54, I hope, I, I, I hope you do so now before I say what I'm about to say, but... Marco dies, everyone. He does. And you knew Marco was going to die, Lisa, because after I read Saga 54 three plus years ago, even though I knew I didn't want to spoil anything for you, I could not control myself because I was so devastated. I like rushed to you. I, I blurted the spoiler that Marco is going to die. Yeah, you and, had to process that emotion, and, and that's something that you do with your partner. And so in our conversations around Saga, uh, a comic that has preoccupied more time than any other comic on Comic Book Couples Counseling, because we covered those first four volumes way back in 2019, uh, having now lived with these characters for so long and thought about these characters for so long and knowing that Marco was going to die... When you finally got to that page and you realized this is how Marco was going to die, how did that issue resonate with you? I mean, it ruined my day. I mean, it made me very that tracks. sad. I didn't realize that it would be the last, very last page of volume nine. Mm -hmm. And I, I am now currently caught up. Yeah, we've read the three issues that are currently available post-Volume 9. And um, there is no real, like, at least in these first three issues, grieving or addressing of that tragedy. Because we get another time jump. Uh-huh. But, like, so I am feeling a little bit of, I think, Summit Syndrome. Mm -hmm. I've been anticipating experiencing this grief. And then when I get to this grief... It's not meeting my expectation. Um, all of the uh, adrenaline and dopamine from approaching this goal point has now dropped off. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, it, it it really did make me sad twice because it it 
made me sad in the moment as I was reading the issue and then doubling back and doing my notes, like really that was when I just kind of laid down on my back in the living room and just wept into my own ears. Right, right. Because I was in the room when you finished the issue and you did not cry when you finished the issue, but I did witness the cloud come into our apartment and hang over you for the rest of the day. And we went for a walk and we did all these other things. And, but I would say that you were in a funk for 24 hours. I was. And then when you did your notes, that's when you were kind of the weepy mess. I was. Yeah. Uh, I took to Twitter that day and I asked our followers how they were affected when they originally read Saga 54. And I thought we could share some of their responses here on the episode. Yeah, I'm into that. And we got a lot of reactions because this issue does, to this day, cause a lot of passion. But up first, uh, this comes from Insane Ian. And the response that he had to reading the issue was, Anger, sadness, hope that it wasn't true. As the delay continued and the anticipation built, I eventually figured it sadly was true. The delay did not help those initial feelings, though, right? Like, that giant gap of three-plus years where you're just waiting, well, what is the next issue going to be? And and for me, I don't think there was any way that next issue was going to be satisfying at all. I feel that that's like extremely relatable. We've all had that experience where when we're reading a story or a comic book, we're like, this character couldn't possibly be dead. Mm -hmm. And then they're not. Yeah. And oftentimes they're not dead. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they do confirm in the following issues that he is definitely dead. (laughs) Definitely not coming back. And they do it in such a cruel and mean-spirited way. But I do agree that Brian K. Vaughn has toyed with our trust mm-hmm. over the course of this story in a way that I find very compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, not everybody feels that uh, compelling nature to it <laughs> uh, that you do. Uh, continuing, Mr. McKnight says, It was the only time a comic moved me to tears. Hardy Comics said, pure depression for several days. My comic book collection said, I was stunned. I couldn't believe it happened, but it felt totally true and in line for the story Saga had been telling. Nick Hay said, honestly, it was, quote, damn it, he got me again, end quote. Mm. Like, I didn't suffer enough from Why the Last Man? Uh, Zach over at Comics Bookcase said, so devastated, I took a day or two, then wrote my reaction. And I'll have a link in the show notes to the Comics Bookcase reaction to Saga 54. Absolutely worth your time. Please give that a read. Zach's writing on Comics Bookcase about Saga is a great place to go when you are processing those complicated emotions. Yeah. Because he's such a great writer, and and he makes it very relatable. And since it's been back, he's been doing reviews for every issue. And after I read the issue, I go right to Comics Bookcase Mm -hmm. and read them. Uh, James Kaplan continues, very angry. They did a very, very bad thing. I'm still reading the book because, I mean, come on, it's Saga, but I'm still mad three plus years later. Don't get me wrong. I believe in this creative team, but they're really going to have to deliver to make that decision seem worthwhile. Mm. And I think that's sort of where I'm at right now. We've had to reevaluate continuously what is Saga. Yeah. Like, I remember when I first read that those first couple of issues as part of our uh, book club. Yeah. 
and going like, oh my goodness, this is about a really functional relationship getting <laughs> through some tough times. Right. And then um, when they were briefly separated, mm. I'm like, I'm not going to read Saga. You were so mad during I the was, fadeaway issues. I was upset because to me, it wasn't meeting the expectation of what the book was. Uh-huh. But then eventually on this podcast, I continued reading and it they did return to that place mm-hmm. um but but i think that that's life also like you are constantly having to reevaluate and recreate the story of of existence right absolutely yes uh dan gavazdin from at uh sup spider talk uh the amazing spider talk podcast an mm-hmm. excellent podcast says I kind of had no reaction. I'm going to be honest. Vaughn's stuff too often goes to shock for me, and it wears me numb. I've never fallen in love with any of his stories. I think this is why. And we discussed that a little bit on the last session episode, where the pattern of like, hey, we're having a good time, smash, punch in the gut, it's a terrible time. Like, he does enjoy that sort of rope-a-dope nature of, you know... Uh, storytelling. Of storytelling, yes, yes, yes. And, and once you recognize that pattern, it makes you very uh, leery going into the next storyline or when even a, a new character appears. You're like, well, how much can I really invest in this person? And I think that it's okay to say no thanks, not for me. Yeah, of course, of course. And we'll get to that in a second, but I think many people did say no thanks mm-hmm. after this issue. Tyler is a punk rocker, said straight up wept. Mm -hmm. George P said, I knew what happened when I started reading the series. It completely broke my heart, but it felt strangely conclusive. It's a very hard feeling to describe since a bunch of the loose ends were wrapped up, but I knew there was more to come. Uh, Brad Barnes said, I suspect that Fiona Staples is fighting to keep every character alive and that Brian K. Vaughn is itching to kill everybody except Hazel. The magnificent tension in Saga, what makes this a glorious achievement is watching Staples win the battles and Vaughn winning the war. I do find it curious, this theme that keeps returning this idea that Brian K. Vaughn is this sadistic person mm-hmm. who is reveling in breaking our hearts. I think that's like a little reductive. I think that he does want to have conversations about hardship and grieving and loss and creating characters that we love makes those conversations more interesting. Sure. And I would love to see some kind of scorecard of (laughs) the characters that Fiona Staples did want to keep. Right, right. Because, like, I'm sure, like, you know, they are... cooperating in yep. creating this story. And I'm sure that she's she is consenting to have all of these beautiful people, <laughs> you know, murdered before our eyes. Well, we do know, uh, thanks to an interview that she gave that we discussed on our podcast, that she told Brian K. Vaughn that Lion Cat must stay. Right. And we speculate that Goose hopefully is on that same tier next to Lion Cat because I would be... Like, you know, I've been devastated many times reading Saga, but like, could I take Goose having his head exploded? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Um, But, you know, yeah, there. But I also agree with you that there is this sort of delicious 
energy around the possibility that everyone but Hazel could die at any moment. Mm -hmm. And even Hazel, because of Isabel's life after life, might not be um, safe. safe. Right. Now, we also asked on Twitter if there were any people out there who just straight up said no more with Saga after issue four. And we did get some responses. Issue 54. After issue 54. And we did get some responses. Uh, this one right here, I think, is uh, very compelling. It comes from Nihilistic Wrong Hordak. <laughs> uh, and they say, I'd check it out at the library for curiosity. I Referring to the next volume after 54. Mm -hmm. I like Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, but was on the fence before hiatus. Throwing a lot of bigotry at and then murdering Doff and Upshur felt cheap. Mm -hmm. For me, the story became a checklist of traumas without an emotional return. Similar reason why I gave up The Walking Dead. And, you know, I can't argue that. Right. I think that Brian K. Vaughn takes on a lot of representation that he's not necessarily qualified to do. And, um, and I understand that it creates some hurt feelings and kind of like going like, I I don't know, man. Yeah. 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 Should you be doing like, do you know what you're doing? Like, is he aware of what he is doing with these characters? Like who is he consulting? Right. 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 Um, Upshur is alive. That was what I was going to say. Upshur is still with us. As we'll talk about in our main discussion. I would love for him to have some kind of heroic win. It it would be, yeah, I I would be pretty pleased with that. Uh, Jamie Rose on Twitter said, I tried the first couple issues after 54 and yeah, I'm done Mm -hmm. at 54. And again, you know, um, I think my experience reading the issues since Saga's return has been one of dissatisfaction because we didn't get that grieving period that you discussed. And also like um, things that go on in the three issues after 54, like in relation to Brian K. Vaughn's kind of gleeful antagonism towards the reader, uh, specifically like the trigger warning splash page, the final splash page of issue 56. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little aggravating. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, I will talk about the latest issues, but I do feel like that thing of like, we don't have Marco, but we still have the things that you love, the exploitation, the, um, you know, gratuitous sex and, you know, that kind of thing where I feel like he's just kind of putting that stuff on as like a salve kind of like we're still going to be provocative. And um, and I think that, you know, that might be a misread. Like, yeah. like we're not necessarily there for the you know, offensive language or the tits or whatever. Yeah, not not at this point. Not at this point having now like fully invested into this family that has now been shattered. Mm-hmm. That being said, you know, I um uh, uh, nihilistic Hordic referring to like was already being sort of leery of this uh, comic before 54. Like Saga has some problematic stuff in it throughout the entire run. It's not like suddenly Saga is problematic. Like the way that they do use sexual violence throughout this series is 
very troubling at times, and I struggle with how it is being executed as a series. I keep going because I have, at this point, fallen in love with these characters, and I do have some kind of faith in Staples and Vaughn that they will make it all worth it for me. Yeah, like, I almost fell off of Saga. Right. During the whole fade away, right? You know, like I, I didn't, I, I didn't come to Saga f- for a story about being strung out on drugs, <laughs> like that. I didn't find that interesting. But also, I've never really read Saga in monthlies. Yeah, I have always waited for the trades, so I could always, through those rougher times, keep that momentum going to continue the story and then fall back in love with it at a time where it's like, okay, now it's fulfilling the things that I want. It's meeting those expectations. So, like, I can see how hard it is to be, you know, a Wednesday warrior and have to do that, like, you know, four weeks wait to see if you are gratified by how the story is continuing. Yeah, and I can't remember if I've discussed this in our saga episodes or not, but I have always found the monthly read of this comic book challenging. And when I am reading it monthly, I'm never in love with the comic. It's only when I go back and revisit on the second go around in trade or after all the issues are completed that I go like, oh man, this is one of my favorite comics. Mm. And now we've had this three year gap and now we're back to month to month. We've had three issues of a six issue arc. So we have like three issues left until the next trade is collected. Volume 10 is collected. And like, is there enough in these upcoming three issues that are going to satisfy me? I don't know. But again, my experience has been once I get to the end of that arc, I read it all at once and I go, oh, I see what they're doing. And we can talk about this at the end of this episode, but we sort of alluded to it last session about doing another saga podcast in October when volume 10 is collected. And I think that might even be uh, healthier for us than discussing the three issues that we have read so far at the tail end of this episode. Oh, are you reprogramming uh, on the fly? I, I'm just I'm just putting that out there right now. And I, we can talk about it at the end after we've discussed everything in volume nine. Sure. But I really appreciated going online, going to Twitter, going to our followers and getting all of their responses to what it was like for them when they read Saga 54, Misery Loves Company and all that. We didn't even read every response on this episode, uh, but like the, the, the emotions are very, very high around this storyline. And I find that to be the most compelling thing about Saga is the reaction to Saga. My reaction, Lisa's reaction, and everyone's reaction. And we've learned from Helen Russell, like when you are having and experiencing an, an emotion, it is valuable to talk about it. Yes. And like, to me, going out there and saying like, um, hey, this thing made me sad. This thing ruined my day. This thing made me cry. How did it make you feel? And finding people who said, yeah, me too. Like, I, to me, that's tremendously like affirming. Yeah, and unifying. Yeah, and I do think that talking about fiction and engaging in hypothetical grief and discussing and practicing hypothetical grief does prepare us 
for the real true sadness mm -hmm. that we are inevitably going to experience in mm -hmm. the future. Mm -hmm. um, reading through everyone's reactions to Marco's death brought back for me one of our previous love experts, Catherine, Dr. Catherine Shear from the Center of Complicated Grief. And I found myself going back to her healing milestones and derailers. Which we discussed in our Martian Manhunter episode. That's right. It was a one pod stand. Link in the show notes. But um, I heard a lot of the derailers coming up, like repeatedly imagining scenarios where the death didn't happen or happened differently. Anger and bitterness that you can't resolve or let go of. Um, embracing like ideas about grief that that you you want to change what happened or control what happened. You mm. want to take over the narrative. Mm. Like so I think that maybe um over the course uh, if you choose to continue saga, which it is a form of en entertainment, it is hypothetical grief. And you, if it's not entertaining, don't read yeah, it. Yeah, don't read it uh, <laughs> by all means, but I I do um, encourage you to look up the healing milestones and practice them on Marco. Can you honor Marco? Can you open yourself up to the emotions that you're feeling over this loss? Can you accept the grief and create a place for it in your life? We started this conversation by you saying, Brad, that um, Marco's death represents an end of mm. the relationship between Marco and Alana. But I think that Hazel as narrator mm -hmm. kind of underscores the idea that when a person dies, that is not the end of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Like as you continue your narrative as an individual experiencing loss, the way that you think about the person you lost changes. The way that you fold what you learn from that relationship in your life revolves and that relationship continues. And we see Hazel still carry a tremendous amount of gratitude and reverence for the person that she lost. Yeah, that's family. You carry your parents' story with you, in you. You carry your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents' story. Like, you are the continuation. And it's not like a one-sided relationship. And I don't even mean that in like, you know, Marco is in heaven hovering above her. I mean that she's, the things that Marco said still in, exist inside her and still continue to inform her. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he he still has, a, she he still provides like this directive force for her. And I think that all of the people that we've lost as individuals continue to inform who we are and who we will become. Yeah, and I want to get into it when we get into session around Marco's um, struggling relationship with violence and how that struggle could possibly continue in Hazel's relationship with violence. And that struggling relationship with violence is also his struggling relationship with his father. Yes. And... Um, integrating that grief into his life. It's yeah. still this extremely sore point. And, and, and so it's possible that that arc will be planted or completed by Hazel 
if not Marco. Although I'll also say that I think Marco does complete it at the end of his story too. Oh yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, we but, will talk about but it. But we'll talk about it. But before we can get into session with Alana and Marco, we do need to revisit our current love expert, our self-help guide, Helen Russell and How to Be Sad. You've referenced it a little bit already, Lisa, but how are we really going to approach Saga Volume 9 using How to Be Sad this week? For the sake of proper citation, I will say the full <laughs> title of the book is How to Be Sad, Everything I've Learned About Getting Happier by Being Sad by Helen Russell. And last week, we encouraged Marco and Alana to talk about their sadness using some of the points of part two of the book, Shake off the shame, stop apologizing for your feelings, and avoiding the fallacy of arrival and summit syndrome. So this week, our final week with Helen Russell, we are closing out How to Be Sad with the final part, which is entitled Stuff to Do When We're Sad. Now that Marco and Alana have learned to accept their sadness and talk about it in an open and honest way, we want to give them a grab bag of options of things to do when they are processing those emotions that are not numbing or avoidant, but mm. enriching and healing. I have organized this into something of a, of a listicle. That's not how these ideas are presented in the, in the book. The way that she composes this being part self-help, part memoir, mm. is it's very like stream of consciousness. So okay. for me to turn it into like, actionable recommendations. I did have to kind of rejigger everything to make it work for our format. That's what we come here for, Lisa, your POV. Okay, so number one is to take your culture vitamins. When you're feeling low, indulge in some culture. Thanks to an increasing number of programs that Russell refers to as arts on prescription programs internationally, there is a compelling amount of research that shows that exposure to the arts and culture can mitigate the negative effects of social disadvantage mm. or like makes depressing circumstances less depressing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Participants self-report increased self-esteem, a sense of empowerment, reductions in anxiety and depression. The term culture vitamin comes from an arts on prescription program partially funded by the Danish Health Authority in Aalborg, Denmark, called the Culture Vinaminer Project that encourages cultural participation specifically for mental health purposes. Love it. Russell recommends choosing a culture vitamin that runs parallel to your emotions rather than contrary, at least when it comes to choosing your musical soundtrack. Researchers at the University of South Florida played depressed and non-depressed participants Excerpts of sad music, like Barber's Adagio for Strings, versus <laughs> happy and neutral music. I would love an example of neutral music. And the study found that depressed participants were most likely to choose the sad music, finding it to be the most relaxing, calming, or soothing. Happy music, blues traveler. <laughs> Run around. I don't know. For you, I think it is sad music. <laughs> Though many of us have a vast pharmacy of culture vitamins just lying around the house in the form of comic books, music, and movies, either in physical or streaming form, consider going out with a buddy huh. or even alone what? to also get some of that um, change of routine, yeah. increase, increase social interaction, yeah. and just having a buddy. I'm pretty good at that. Pretty good at that. Number two is immerse yourself in a story. It's, it's kind of an extension of number one, but brain scans show that when you immerse yourself in a story, like reading a novel, 
Our brain mentally rehearses activities, sights, and sounds, stimulating our neural pathways, and even shows a boost of empathy. A lot of times when we feel anxious and depressed, we don't have the focus to read, so audiobooks are also a great alternative. And the Danish Cultural Vitamin Pro Project actually has shared reading experiences where a librarian will read aloud to a group of people oh for God. one to two hours, like grown-up circle time. Oh my God, I definitely need that. I would sign up for that in a second. Uh, yeah, also all of this stuff I think is like very much what we do at Comic Book Couples Counseling. I think that's what everyone listening does. Like that's why we throw ourselves into comics to experience these things. And they do act, as you were saying, as training wheels to real life emotional events. I, and I do think that sometimes if your negative affect is the result of some kind of crisis, mm -hmm. you might feel like indulging in cultural experiences like reading a comic book might be a waste of time. And I think that this kind of underscores the idea that processing your emotions, however it's effective for you, is never a waste of time. Yes, yes, absolutely. Amen. The chapter in... Uh, the chapter covering this topic in How to Be Sad is mostly talking about book books, like novels and biographies, but I imagine that comic books and movies could have the same effect. Comic books are books, Lisa. Exactly. I agree. Especially if you're truly engaged in the comic book, not just using comics to like numb out. I think that it, it is helpful. I've found it helpful in my own life, and now science proves it. Number three is to tell your own story. Studies show that people who tend to see their life as a story of personal growth, a journey, have higher levels of eudonomic well-being. Eudonomic is a new word for me. It means conducive <laughs> to happiness. Okay. So like um, new word for me. some of our Twitter followers have not found reading saga to be eudonomic. So they it's not conducive to their happiness, so they have stopped reading it. Fair. As an example for an application of this concept, Ross McCormick, a childhood bereavement psychotherapist, begins his work with bereaved families by having them construct the story of what happened to them with a beginning, middle, and end, hmm. framing it as a transformative experience. Hmm. According to a study in the Journal of Happiness Studies, those who see their narrative identity as a path to gaining insights do better psychologically, mm. which is something I think that we do intuitively on mm -hmm. this podcast. Mm -hmm. We go like, okay, we are reading these comics to become better people. That is our narrative identity. Mm. Number four is to experience nature. In Japan, there is a practice referred to as Shinrin-yoku, which translates to forest bathing for relaxation, and there is scientific research to back it up. A meta-analysis of studies about the impact of green space on our minds and bodies shows that being in nature reduces our blood pressure, our stress levels, and our anxiety. The same can be said for being near a body of water. It improves our mood and reduces stress, and researchers from Northwestern University found that people who fell asleep listening to water slept more deeply and improved their memories. Number five, move your bod. <laughs> Russell interviewed Dr. Brendan Stubbs, a physiotherapist and leading expert in mood psychology. In 2016, Stubbs studied 30 randomized controlled trials that showed that regular exercise could lessen depressive symptoms over a 12 to 16 week period. In 2018, he and his colleagues did a meta-analysis that found that exercise decreased a person's risk of developing depression regardless of age or geographical region. Mm. Here's a quote. 
from Stubbs, the most important thing to bear in mind is that we're not talking about anything extreme. If you do 150 minutes of exercise a week, that's 20 minutes a day, you will have a 30% reduced risk of depression. So I think sometimes um, when it comes to moving my body, the thing that stops me is like, well, I don't have time to do like a real workout, therefore it's not worth my time at all. Right, yes. So even just going out for 20 minutes and doing a quick walk around is good for your mental and or emotional Or maybe health. even 10 minutes. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, sometimes the most amount of time that we can find, I think even taking 10 minutes to do a little bit of physical exercise, just a walk around our apartment pop, parking lot, I find to be helpful. It, it really is. Number six, do something for someone else. Helen Russell defines sadness as the natural response to emotional pain, feelings of loss, helplessness, hopelessness, or disappointment. A great anecdote to loss, helplessness, hopelessness, disappointment is to alleviate those feelings for others. Mm. University of Pennsylvania, Yale, and Harvard researchers had participants report their feelings of time affluence after spending time on others, time on themselves, finding a windfall of free time, and wasting time. Their research showed that the time spent on others resulted in the greatest feeling of time well spent. I think I'm going to try to integrate the idea of time affluence into my vocabulary because mm. I remember when I was suffering from clinical depression, like one of the main things that I would complain about was people always demanding more of my time. And I still, still a have lot that. of the time have a, like a, a lot of like time scarcity yeah. related emotions. And I think that like being able to in, engage in a, an activity that can make me feel more bountiful in time would be worthwhile. The worst thing we can do to Lisa is schedule her week. <laughs> like, you're like, Lisa, we've got this film club and we've got this podcast record session. We've got this interview. we got to go hang out with these friends. Our, your whole vacation is planned. Uh, it oh, feels awful. <laughs> but do you know what? I also don't do well with a windfall of free time. I know. You know, like. Delicate balance. It, it truly is. Um, the same thing goes for money, too. Harvard researchers found that pro-social spending makes us feel more bountiful wherever we are in the world, regardless of our income or socioeconomic status. So if you're feeling a scarcity, try sharing, I guess, is the lesson I take away from that. I know I have felt what researchers call a helper's high. Recently at work, um, I noticed <laughs> a woman holding a baby coughing and I just handed her an extra bottle of water. And I was like, oh my goodness, I am next to godliness. I'm so generous. And MRI scans show that our brains light up with pleasure when we give to others. Yeah. And as if I don't feel saintly enough, I can always think about the research done by the University of California, San Diego, and Harvard that found that cooperative, helpful behavior is communicative. Mm. It spreads from person to person in what they refer to as a cascade of cooperation. So who knows? Maybe me passing that mom a bottle of water resulted in someone curing cancer. I'm pretty sure I caught, cured cancer, y'all. I, I, I don't know about that, but like I think in the last several years, what I have experienced is when I feel the oppressive weight of awfulness that you see out in the world, 
the only way I can truly relieve it is to be proactive in some way, whether that is through donation or reaching out or talking to somebody. That's the only relief I can find. I think that that internal, it, it can restore hopefulness. Yes, yes, yes. Because also when you reach out and you interact and you help, and you find other people who are helping, who want to help, you discover that you are not alone in that despair. Mm, well, it's like Mr. Roger says, you gotta look for the helpers. Yes. Keep in mind that all of the activities I've listed can be done while processing our sadness. We don't want Marco and Alana to be falling back into those bad habits from episode 77 when I listed the most common ways we try and fail to avoid sadness. Avoiding close relationships, avoiding meaningful goals, numbing out, staying busy, and staying distracted. Mm. In this session, I think we should be trying to reinforce choosing these sadness-affirming activities while they are processing their feelings in these extremely stressful circumstances. Yeah, I love this. I like having a plan uh, for when you are sad. These are the things that you can do to help. But before we can even talk about any of that, Lisa, we got to get into our words of affirmation. Na, 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 my, my voice is a little tired. I, I think I think you sounded lovely. Oh, thank you. So for first-time listeners, uh, we should explain that the words of affirmation portion of our show is our way of giving back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. We curate and use these affirmations ourselves, and we're more than happy to pass them on to you, the listener. This week, the affirmations come from... Mr. Rogers, of course. already name-checked on this episode, <laughs> Glenn Close, what? And Maya Angelou. Glenn Close went to the College of William and Mary oh. in Virginia. Oh, she also went to uh, the same high school that Sandra Bullock went to, uh, that Warren Beatty went to, Washington Lee in Arlington. They're locals. Yeah, but now we have to get into our affirmation receptive mindset, Lisa. I don't know if I have mentioned this mm. in the previous episode, uh -huh. talking about how to be sad. Helen Russell does refer to a study about the use of affirmations. Oh, yeah? And positive affirmations only work if the person using the affirmations feels that they are true. Mm. So for example, if we use an affirmation like, um, you know, I am a very attractive person, mm -hmm. and I use that as my positive affirmation, but I didn't feel actually that it was true, it would actually result in me feeling worse. Yeah, and, and I, 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 I've experienced that because I've used kind of that affirmation before, right? Like where you're staring in the mirror, doing your Stuart Smalley thing, and you're like, I am Brad, I am a very attractive person. And when you don't feel like you are actually attractive, you feel like you are now lying to yourself. So I it's, feel like in choosing our affirmations, mm. we need to be cognizant of making, finding affirmations that can be and are generally true. Yeah, and I think I, I, I've i chosen these affirmations. And you've killed it, these are great affirmations. Right, okay, so can we get into that receptive affirmation mindset? Can we? Calm down, Lisa. Can we relax? I know. I'm a person of tremendous momentum. All right. So we have three affirmations to these three lovely patrons, starting with Chris Hacker. Who you are inside is what helps you make and do everything in life. James Senor. Your perspective is unique, 
It's important and it counts. Lexi C. Nothing can dim the light that shines from within you. Yeah. Mm, So I hope you feel that those affirmations are generally true about you and we're not ruining your day. But thank you to those three patrons and thank you to everyone else who is listening. You certainly have made our day. Of course, we don't expect everyone to join our Patreon. And there are other ways that you can support Comic Book Couples Counseling. Leaving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes does a lot. It helps us reach so many other listeners. So if you have a few seconds in your day, just like a two-word five-star review, we'll do all the difference for Comic Book Couples Counseling. Though our love language is words of affirmation. So if you write a little bit more with some (laughs) specific compliments, oh man, that makes us feel so good. It really, really does. Fills our love tank. It sure does. So it's time to get into session with Marco and Alana for one last time. This week, we are discussing Saga Issues 49 through 54, which were collected in Trade Paperback Volume 9, written by Brian K. Vaughn, fully illustrated by Fiona Staples and lettered by Phonographics. The issues were originally published between February 2018 and July 2018. Here's the basic plot synopsis taken from the back of the Trade Paperback. From the worldwide best-selling team, Fiona Staples and Brian K. Vaughn, Saga is the sweeping tale of one young family fighting to find their place in the universe. Fake news and genuine terror collide in the most shocking, most impactful adventure yet. Though, surrounded by death and destruction, young Hazel's story has only just begun. And that's... A good place to start. So 54 issues in, Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples have said that this is the halfway point for Saga. There will be only 108 issues. So as the back of the book says, it is a beginning, but it feels like an ending. It Like, uh, I, 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 for a long time, I couldn't imagine what this comic book would be after the last page of this book. But we are going to find out. We're finding out now as the new issues come out. I don't feel like it's an ending. I, like, because to me... Because you wouldn't be satisfied. Yeah, absolutely not. So it's not going to be an ending until there is some kind of sense of resolution. And so it, it does this feel like a halfway marker to you? Absolutely. And a major turning point. So we could be going literally anywhere. Yes. And as much as Brian K. Vaughn loves stomping on our hearts and subverting expectations, I think he loves paying something off even more. Yeah. He has riddled the road with um, foreboding uh, teasers. I don't know. I don't like the word teasers, but you know, like... He's building anticipation. We just don't know for what. And and on the reread, he telegraphs Marco's death way earlier than I initially ever imagined because this was just not a possibility for me. So in getting into the session with Marco and Alana, they're in the room with us now. Uh, I think we should begin with not necessarily the very beginning of this volume, but where we first meet them all together in bed, sound asleep, the most peaceful image you could possibly imagine. And as Hazel states, even though they were closer to danger 
in a way that they had never been before, it felt like this is their happiest moment. And we see this reflected in the narration. Here's a quote from Hazel Narrator. Because while our enemies were close, we were closer, closer as a family and closer to the new companions we gathered along the way. So to me, I feel like because they have been through so much and they have dealt with so much uncertainty in their relationship already, they have trained themselves to truly live in the present. They go like, we don't know if we're going to be together in the future, but we are going to embrace being together right now. And it is like these early issues of this volume are the happiest we've ever seen them. You know, we have them, you know, sleeping as a family in one bed together. We have them playing. We have them, you know, on Jetsam uh, having like maybe one of the most enjoyable sex sequences, like the, one of the most loving sex sequences that we've had in this comic. And we've had loving sex seasons between Marco and Alana, but this one feels like really special. And again, on the reread, it, it's brutal. It's brutal to get through. Well, I think that scene that you're talking about um, kind of celebrates how much better, if you stay with one person, how you gain a certain amount of expertise when it comes to being with the other person. In a sexual situation, like sex gets better the more you do it. Exactly. And, and I love that being reflected in a literary way because uh -huh. so much of the time um, it's reflected that like, oh, if you're saying with the same person all of the time, it gets boring and not if you're still curious and excited about each other. Yeah. And before that sequence, we even have the beginning of a sexual relationship between Sir Robot and Petricor. And like, I love the moment when Sir Robot reveals his true feelings to Petricor on the screen. Mm -hmm. I love you. Um, I, I, I relate to that in some way because it, while it wasn't in a sexual situation, <laughs> I said, I love you to Lisa, maybe prematurely just by a, accident in an awkward accidental <laughs> way. And then we just kind of rolled with it. Uh, -huh. uh so like, like when that scene happens, you know, I have to put myself in it and I'm so excited for their blossoming. I hate to use the word blossoming, but their blossoming, mm -hmm. blossoming romance and again, on the reread, I'm going to keep saying this again on the reread, again on the reread, like it's hard not to be a little mad at Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples because we are in such a happy place and it's all going to come crashing down. These two sex scenes are actual like kind of beautiful mirrors of each other because Petricor does not return the affection. Right. She right. goes like, hey, our future is uncertain so to avoid sadness, I'm going to avoid getting any closer to you. Yeah. We're going to keep this to just a purely non-committal sexual relationship. Thankfully, when I accidentally said I love you to Lisa, Lisa rolled with it and just said like, I love you too. And, and then, then I'm just stayed with him forever just yeah. to save him from that awkwardness. It happened at the <laughs> end of a date in a car as I was dropping her off back at her place. And, uh, you know, as she was exiting, I was like, love you. And she was like, ah, love you, too. <laughs> and then she went into her house and I drove back to my place going like, why did I say I love you? Did I ruin everything? I know exactly why you said that. And that's because you live in an I love you family. Yes. Where you guys say that every time you part. Yes. Where 
my parents did not start saying I love you on a like a regular basis on the phone and or when we were parting until all of us kids started dating. Interesting. And they started hearing us say it to all kinds of weirdos. And they're like, <laughs> okay, let hold on a second. Let's try to introduce that into our vocabulary. Well, that's kind of beautiful too. So it's it's a uh, um not automatic for yeah, us. Yeah, but thankfully you didn't like do the petrichor thing. And go like, hell, slow your roll. <laughs> We've had a lovely time today, but. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we rolled with it. That's right. But the main like narrative of this volume is, well, one, the will and Ianth. Ianth? Ianth is Ianth? how I say it in my head. The star-nosed mole person. The, the, I, we didn't really talk about her on the last episode, but the will murdered her boyfriend. And so she has kidnapped the will, chained the will in this kind of like dog collar electric shock device and is torturing him. And in the process of torturing him discovers the existence of Hazel and is now using the will as kind of her like guard dog slash uh, enslaved PI. Yeah, like a, just a revenge tool. And 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 that and now Hazel has folded into her plan. So that's why Eonth is trying to find Marco and Alana. Meanwhile, Marco and Alana, they need to like do something to remove themselves off the chessboard, this political chessboard. And Doff and Upshur, the journalists, suggest, like, if you let us write your story, we can do this transubstantiation thing where you'll get new bodies. It's like a witness protection program to the nth level. And they don't say no right away. We get to watch them go through a decision process of measuring this new information, this opportunity to completely disappear, all they have to sacrifice is their beautiful, beautiful bodies. Right. Um, against their principles. But Marco is definitely, like, shocked and maybe, uh, I, I don't know, appalled's too strong of a word, but I think he leans closer to the no immediately. Like, the first response he gives is like, what? Right. I, I, I think that what face comes up before the transubstantiation yes, thing. Yes. Alana is more open just in general than yeah. Marco is. So she is the one who goes like, we would like to hear you out. And um, they say that by this story coming out, it can take, it, it might be the key to ending the war. And then Marco goes like, well, D. Oswald Heiss says yeah. that war can't be ended any more than the rain. All we can do is help each other stay dry. Yeah. And then we get to see like <laughs> this kind of tension between Doff and Upshur and Marco and Alana and their whole crew of constantly deferring to the platitudes of a fiction writer. Uh-huh. Um, Love it. Very relatable for Brad. <laughs> well, I think that it is good to weigh against the power the power of um fantasy fiction um against the truth like the truth like the facts that we can yeah. track down. Yeah. Um I I 
enjoy thinking about them in this kind of oppositional way. I, I of course, believe in both, right? right? As as a reader and as a thinker. But like this issue as a kickstart to this story is having a conversation that was very much like Trump's America and fake news, right? And so we're seeing the two sides of like, well, can the truth do something? Like, mm -hmm. you have to question, like, Doff and Upshur say, like, this could end the war, but we also know that the two opposing sides are actually collaborating to extend the war, mm -hmm. which Sir Robot also knows about. Right. And so if this were to come out, you have to wonder, like, would anything actually change? Other than just this family unit yes. who loves each other so much and we as as readers and as counselors have grown to love yes. like are going to be put in harm's way yes. which we do not want so they don't make the decision right away no and also sir robot is eavesdropping and is thinking mm, there might be an opportunity for me here and that then leads to what is going on in Sir Robot's life. And, you know, all he cares about is keeping Squire safe. And also this relationship with Petrichor is, could turn into something. He's excited about that. And we see, though, like, Squire is also going through a lot of um, hardship and internal suffering. Uh, Hazel and Squire get into an argument over Punk Hunk, and you know uh, Hazel wants Punk Hunk back. Squire doesn't want to give Punk Hunk back. They start fighting. Uh, Hazel calls uh, Squire fat, throws Squire across the room into Frendo, waking up poor Goose who's doing babysitter duties. And he tries to teach them a lesson saying like, don't fight with your fists, use your words. And then Squire says to Hazel, you look dumb without your front tooth. And then Hazel's response is, well, you look dumb without a mom. And then there's that silent panel between the three of them with Goose in the middle and Hazel looking into the face of Squire. We don't see what's projected on that screen of Squire's face, but it can't be good, and she looks devastated. She knows she has done something truly heinous in this moment. And she tries to take it back by saying she was just kidding. Yeah. And I love Hazel's narration in that moment because she says, like, it's a real gift for young people to be able to see the face of someone they've just hurt. In that moment, you, lear you learn whether or not you have what it takes to be a killer. Yeah. So Squire has already tested himself in if he has what it takes to be a killer from that moment in the woods. Yeah, yeah. Or what was that beast called? Uh, the Dreadnought. Yeah, with yeah. the Dreadnought. Um, so this is her moment to go like, I don't have what it takes to hurt someone. But then she turns and she blames Goose. Yeah. Because... What she said hurt Squire way more than her biting him in the arm. Right. And so what we are seeing is not th in this scene, dominoes falling, right? The previous scene, dominoes falling, dominoes falling, dominoes falling. We are racing to something major. We can sense it. There is a momentum to this volume that is probably there in all the previous volumes, but it feels the most intense and the most rapid. This volume reads so quickly. I think this scene is just another scene in the thesis statement of the power of words versus the power of violence. It's the powers 
power of words that's keeping the war going. It's the power of words that keeps Upshur and Doff motivated. It's the power of words that has Marco creating his principles. Words are violent. Words are violent. And we're going to get that phrase coming up later in the book. And and that was something that where I have to go like, okay, well, where do I align my principles with that I, that idea? Uh-huh. Um, and I guess we'll get to that when we get to that point in the book. Oh, okay. But I think another important thing that's going on with Squire, and this is not Squire's counseling session, but I can't, I can't stop myself, um, <laughs> is that Squire was raised in a bubble mm-hmm. on a essentially a deserted island being taught chivalry. Yeah, and being told that he was the most important person in the universe. So out of the context of that bubble, he is now seeing his father act contrary mm. to the words that he mm. was taught. Mm. Yeah. And in doing that, um, now Sir Robot is unknowingly estranging himself from his son. Yes. Because there is nothing more dangerous than a child going, but you told me that this is true always. Yeah, what? Hypocrisy? And so, like, Squire, instead of clinging to his father, clings to the ideas of chivalry. And And he is now planning to run away rather than stay with his father. Yeah. And lose his identity. So poor Goose, he's called a terrible babysitter by Hazel and he cannot argue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that issue ends with Sir Robot approaching Dauphin Upshur with the story of the collaboration between Wreath and Landfall. And he says, look, you know, whatever Marco and Alana say, like who, who knows what they're going to do, but I can sell you this. And can you do for me what you are going to do for them? And as he makes that offer, the final page of this issue is we get to see his screen, a portrait of himself. And he's saying like, please don't take up my offer. This will kill me. But it does look like, based on the fact that the next issue opens on Jetsam, that Marco and Alana have agreed to go through this procedure, have agreed to sell their story to Dauphin Upshur, and we are introduced to Jetsam in the waters in that sex scene, which is like, you know, it's such a saga sex scene, right? Uh, Because there is a scene where Alana may or may not have female ejaculated onto Marco's face, And he's not bothered by it. And the fact that he's not bothered by it, like shocks her, but also like just shows that like they are very connected in a way that they were not when they first got together. Another thing that makes it a saga sex scene is it would take a tremendous amount of athletic prowess to pull pull this off, even with her wings. I mean, Marco is a beast. Like, mm-hmm. he, he is a prime specimen. And she does have wings. She is flying. So I feel like she got up into the air to that uh, that face level <laughs> uh, with her pelvis through some flight situation. But don't think I have not thought about this scene considerably as a woman and <laughs> as an amateur physicist. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I also thought about this scene quite a bit too, Lisa, but I am not a physicist. <laughs> so I think we can relate this scene to how to be sad in a couple of ways. One, they are in nature, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, they are. Is, <laughs> they are forest bathing. <laughs> yeah, that's something to do when you're sad. They're also physically exerting themselves. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. using their bodies. Another some thing exercise. to do uh, when you're sad. And then it's followed by them kind of summing up their story as a couple. Marco points out that it's been seven years since he proposed, and she said, really? It feels like yesterday that you knelt down to me next to a pile of garbage. And he's like, to be fair, we were on the run. And then they're like, but we're living happily ever after right now. So they are putting their story together in a way that feels like they have been triumphing over adversity and those positive narrative identities is conducive to their eudonomic well-being. Yeah, yeah. It's a true collaboration and a collaboration that causes them to not take Doth and Upshur up on their transubstantiation deal. Although they do in that scene, uh, post-coital, discuss one last time whether they should do it or if they're making the right uh, decision. What I think is interesting about this discussion is that Marco, privately, Marco and Alana give different reasons than they had Mm. originally given Doff and Upshur, Mm. where um, Marco says that, like, he doesn't trust them enough to to, um, believe in the transubstantiation thing. He says Upshur and Doff can give all of the, the assurances they want, but we both know that they could never guarantee Mm -hmm. their safety. So what they would be losing would not be enough of an assurance for Marco Mm -hmm. to make that sacrifice. And then uh, he also adds, besides, Hazel would get bored having to spend the rest of her life (laughs) on one planet, and so would her mother. Mm, And I wonder if that relates back to Gardenia, where the most Mm. um, tense time in their relationship was the time that they were most settled. And that is when Alana started going on the circuit to keep herself entertained. And that's also when she got onto Fadeaway. So I feel like Marco feels more secure in their relationship on the run, ironically. I mean, I, I, I think that's totally logical because they've been on the run their entire existence. And yes, that moment on Gardenia is when they were at the most tense and stressed, but also they were on Fang for quite some time too. But they always knew that they were leaving. Yeah, th- yeah, you're right, you're right. They yeah. always mm-hmm. felt like that that was supposed to be temporary. Yeah, I mean, th- that feels like a logical conclusion for Marco to make. Mm-hmm. I think that um, one of Alana's habitual coping mechanisms is that staying busy. Like if she stays in one place too long, that sadness kind of... Um, comes after her. That's originally why she joined the military. I was just going to say that. Like, if you go back to the last saga episode we did and we discussed her flashback at the drive-in when she's being groped by her, like, boyfriend, uh, you know, she wanted off her planet. Like, like, so her story is about flight. Another principle that led to them deciding not ultimately to stay on Jetsum is they have been reiterating to Hazel that her body yes. is beautiful and she shouldn't sacrifice it for anything. Like she's 
she is not a freak. She is a miracle. Yes. And Hazel has also been considering what the transubstantiation spell would mean against her understanding of her principles. And she, when she's alone with Petrichor, she discusses why Petrichor, who is proud of her body, would take the deal. Yeah. And then, of course, Petrichor goes like, I don't owe you an explanation <laughs> about what I do with my body. And also, everything in life is more complicated than the principle. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Petrichor also says, you know, you're a child. Right, <laughs> right, of course. And I'm not falling into this trap of talking real stuff with a child again. But I think that it is important to go like, a principle is nothing more than a guideline. Mm. They, I think that in Saga, we've had it proven to us time and again that principles are not always true. They're always being challenged and you are always having to go back to that guidepost and think it over again. Yeah. So pl other plot stuff that's going on that's not directly associated to Marco and Lana, although everything is directly associated to Marco and Alana, is that Squire is getting ready to run away. Uh, Squire has given his bow to Goose, uh, and Goose doesn't realize it, but Squire is saying goodbye to Goose. And Squire has stolen Punk Conk, and that's his little imaginary buddy as they get up and leave. And then, you know, planets away, Eonth and the Will have found the person that Doff and Upshur have been communicating with frequently, and that person leads Eonth to Jetsam. Yeah, that's the editor of the Hebdo Modal. And this issue ends with them convincing him to give up Dauphin Upshur by the will being forced through electroshock collar treatment to murder and eviscerate this editor's lying cat. And so there's something about the will being forced to do something that he used to do all the time, which is slaughter and murder people. Like there's something about him doing this to a lying cat that feels extra traumatic, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, he's being traumatized by Ianth by being forced to do something ironically against his will. Yes, but it's the fact that he is killing a lying cat that sort of highlights this self-infliction that is occurring because of his relationship with his lying cat. Like, this feels like him killing himself or killing his own lying cat, and I... I feel like in this moment, I'm starting to develop a little more sympathy and sorrow directed to the will, which will then be turned against me by the end of this volume. When I first met the will, like, he, I knew he wasn't a good person, but I I, I kind of loved that guy. Yeah. Like, he was in this relationship with the stock. He, yeah. was, he was a person of... Uh, he had a code and yeah. he was living by that code. And he has strayed so far from that person that we met. Well, what's great about Saga is that any character could be the protagonist if Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples zero their focus on them, right? And like Eonth, she has motivation to be mad the way that she is, right? Her boyfriend was murdered. The will. His girlfriend was murdered by Sir Robot. Like, Sir Robot 
did some sinful, terrible things, but is trying to redeem himself. And in the path of redemption, you start to like, really like Sir Robot. And you know, Marco and Alana have done terrible things in the past, but they are trying to be better. Like everyone, like depending on where Saga leaves the character on the timeline, you can feel totally different about them. I think the one thing that is true about most, if not all characters in Saga is that they have, they are all, um, they're all driven by some kind of motive. And whether that motive has hopeful ends or despicable ends, they're always on the move. They are all grinding towards something. And it usually involves fear and anger. Mm -hmm. and, and, and trauma. And trauma. And in all those cases, it's understandable. I think the thing that makes Marco and Alana such beautiful characters is they always are trying to be better and they all they both believe that they can do it. Yeah. While on Jetsum, things do kind of slow. I guess it takes a long time to mm -hmm. get those transubstantiation ingredients to one place. Yeah, you don't know exactly how much time has passed, but you do get a sense that a significant amount of time is passing while also the reading pace of the comic is speeding up. Uh, because they seem to have a lot of time on the beach. There is a lot of waiting around. And Marco actually starts writing a, <laughs> a secret novel. Right. So um, Upshur has lent him the super cute teal typewriter. Love it. And he's borrowed Alana's glasses, and she finds him in this... <laughs> abandoned cloud on a stick diner type place. I want to eat there. Me too. So is it just cotton candy? I, 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 it's cloud on a stick. I don't know what cloud is, but it looks delicious. I, I mean, I would pay $4.99 for it. <laughs> um, and Alana starts reading the novel immediately. And he, of course, feels like super vulnerable. I love <laughs> the expression on his face as she's reading. Yeah. Like Fiona Staples, that, master. That feels super familiar yeah. as as we both write things. Oh, uh, when Alana says Marco, so many adverbs and the expression, like the dead defeat expression on his face on that bottom panel, that is my soul. <laughs> and he tries to like qualify it. Like, I'm just I'm trying to make a statement about there being no good words or bad words, or just give it give it back to but me. But she's Something. like, shush, I'm reading. She is in, immediately engaged by it. And um, she, he mentions that the the novel that he is writing, while it is fiction, is informed by his own history and inspired. He mentions specifically Yuma as a person that he has now now has gratitude for yeah. when he hated her. Yes, yes. I think that that's yes. just like that. I think that's just another reminder that when someone dies, the relationship is not over. Yes, um, yes. Oh, that's a great point. And then, yeah, so yes, yes, yes. This is what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode about Yuma's narrative. You know, her arc is sort of being completed in Marco's actions, right? And so Marco's actions can be completed by another. Exactly. Alana is 
totally inspired and sucked in by this story. And she asks like, are we going to try to publish this? This is so great. And he goes, God, no. <laughs> so I, to me, like that says that she is still very externally motivated. Like um, she wanted to go on the circuit. She wanted to get that recognition and mm. applause where I feel like Marco is much more intrinsically motivated. Mm. He is writing the novel as a as an exorcising yes. of his narrative identity, which I think is another reason why they balance each other so well. Oh, that's a great point. I had not considered that. I also love the fact that she has never been so proud to mm. see this next evolution in his creativity. And for the rest of Marco's life, he thinks of himself as a writer and he speaks about himself as a as a novelist and a person who creates fiction. He folds that into his personal identity. Where up until this point, like she's holding a stack of pages, it has been a secret. Right, right, right. What do you make of that page, the splash page, where Alana says the word deeply as she is like fully falling into the novel. And then behind her, we see what I presume is the imagery of that novel. And it's demonic. Like, yeah, there's yeah. like fire and there's like these creatures that are terrifying and so, have many tits. What do you make of that? To me, I think that um, she is seeing something in that story that is emotionally resonant to her. There's a life in the book, in the words. Even though it is fiction, she now is reading something that reflects how she has felt mm. up until this point, just completely tortured with no way out, but also that they are the heroes mm. of their story. And while all that is going down, it's a fun beach afternoon for Goose and Sir Robot and Hazel. And Upshur. And Upshur and Doff. Um, unfortunately, what's that little creature that uh, flies under the ocean underneath? Like Hazel thinks she is swimming on her own, but uh, Doff is not actually helping her because originally she thought like Doff was keeping her afloat. The mustached kingfish. So yeah, so Doff got out of the beach, out of the water, and it's this mustached kingfish that's actually under her, giving her a little platform. And then it flies up into the sky. And Doff is so excited because he's always wanted to snap a photo of this thing. He runs off to go grab that photo. He finds the kingfish, but he also finds Eonth and Eonth kills Doff. This incident is actually foreshadowed in an earlier scene when Doff and Upshur are talking, are trying to get the story out of Sir Robot. And he goes like, how come you guys don't transubstantiate yourselves every time you put a story out? and put yourselves in danger. And um, they say that um, the they have always accepted the danger of what they do. And that Upshur specifically has been chasing an obituary Ugh. since they started because Ugh. he wanted, because that was how he was finally going to make a headline. I did not pick up on that. And get that notoriety. And so, of course, thank you, Brian K. Vaughn, so it comes to pass. But instead of Upshur being killed, it is Doff. And it is a direct result 
of their journalism. And I've been thinking about one of the tweets that we read earlier in this episode from nihilistic Rong Hordak about Doff being fridged Mm -hmm. after having to endure so much bigotry. Mm -hmm. And not that I think that their criticism is not valid or in any way incorrect, but I think that there are, like Brian K. Vaughn loves to point out little hypocrisies or big hypocrisies. So in this entire volume, practically, Doff and Upshur are lauding Jetsum for their principle of free press above Mm -hmm. all other things. And it is that principle that makes Jetsum unique. Mm -hmm. And they really truly believe in that. But ironically, Jetsum also is this horribly homophobic place and they have to keep their relationship a secret and they're always under threat of having their um their job taken away from them it happens later in this volume that um somebody from wreath that guy from wreath i can't come up with his name off the top of my head goes like tries to oh the agent yeah the the agent. agent tries to blackmail them to have the hebdo model not post their story. And succeeds. No, not succeeds. They say, oh, you could have just doctored that photo. We know how to doctor photos. Yes, but they've also killed the source. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, it still seems like Wreath uh, is going to succeed in covering up this story. But that's beside my point. My point is that Doff and Upshur are always standing up for Jetsum because of their principle of freedom of the press, despite the fact that where they have grown up has been horribly bigoted towards them for their entire existence, which I think plays to the overall theme that principles are always more complicated than just one rule. We're compromising all of the time. And speaking of compromising, we have to discuss Sir Robot and the decision he makes. Uh, In that exchange between Doff and uh, Yanth, Doff accidentally or purposefully frees the will from his shock collar. And once the will is freed, he leaves like a little note for Yanth. Hey, look, I'm sorry I killed your boyfriend. You skinned my sweet boy. We're even, we're square. And he runs off, and he runs off right into Sir Robot. Who killed his girlfriend. Who killed his girlfriend. And Sir Robot's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't do anything to me and my poor son. I'm going to give you Hazel. Meanwhile, Squire's gone missing. Everyone's looking for him. They run off to rescue Squire or to retrieve Squire. Uh, They don't realize that Squire needs rescuing because he has fallen into the arms of Eonth. And when Goose and Petrichor come across the body of Doth, they also find Eonth with a pistol to Squire's head. Wait, before all of that happens, there is like one little scene that I want to talk about because I feel like it is key to closing out Marco's existence. Okay. And um, one of the overall themes of this volume, Upshur does not yet know that Doff is dead. Marco does not know that Squire is in danger. They're just having a quiet moment together. And Marco starts wondering how long Doff and Upshur have been trailing them. Mm. And Upshur is like, oh, it goes back to that prisoner of war that you beat up. We found that guy 
And from that point on, we were able to follow you. And then Marco goes, see, it's just like D. Oswald High said, like one act of violence creates these ripples that ultimately come back to you. And Upshur goes like, well, you know, if you had actually killed that guy, we may have never even known about yeah, you. Yeah, so it's your mercy that damned you. And of course, Marco bristles at that. And he goes <laughs> like, well, that's talking like a guy who has never had to take a life. And Upshur goes like, the journalism, the kind of journalism that I do, I know kills people. Like, I know that ultimately what I am saying is divisive. And putting people in danger. And Marco goes like, doesn't that weigh on you? Doesn't that cause you tremendous guilt? And he goes like, look, I hold the principle of free press and exposing the truth higher then you should never do anything that hurts another person. And Marco goes like, see, that's why I'm not going to say anything that is directly true. I'm going to be like my hero D. Oswald Heist. <laughs> I am going to um, just write fiction. <laughs> and Upshur goes like, that doesn't, like, by being any kind of writer, you are forcibly putting thoughts into someone's head. Ideas are dangerous, are deadly. He says like, yes, he says that putting an idea into a person's head is an aggressive act and aggressive acts have consequences. And here's the direct quote, face it, you can't be a writer or a, pa you have to be a writer or a pacifist. You can't be both. You can't be both. Words are violent. Yeah, like, so to me, like, I think that, of course, the truth is somewhere in the middle. and Not in the middle, in the mixture. In the mixture. Sometimes words are violence. Sometimes words are a compromise. Sometimes violence is the wrong answer. Sometimes violence is the only answer. And we're all just happy, and we're all just doing the best that we can with the principles that mm -hmm. we have. Mm -hmm. Now we know Ultimately, Marco is going to die as a direct result of him sticking to his principles. And it really doesn't matter if his choice was the right choice or his choice was the wrong choice. It was the choice. It was the choice. And from that point on, we have to just continue spinning our narrative with Marco's life now in the past. I think a lot of the time when we make hard decisions based on principles, something that we factor in is, will I be able to live with myself mm. after making such a decision? Mm. And in this case, Marco said no. And the consequence that happens is just part of that gamble. And I think that that goes back to the gamble that Doff and Upshur are making. They go, we want to be journalists. We want to be soldiers for the truth. That living by that principle may or may not kill us. And now Doff is dead. And that was always part of the equation. You know, like we're all living with that probability. Yeah, and you know, would Marco have made the same choice to spare that person in that convenience store rather than killing them 
if he had known it would lead to his death. Hard to say because- but, Yeah, because how would he even know that? Right, 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 right. So it, you, what you're saying, well, that's a fruitless question. It is a fruitless question. And I think that um, from the end of this volume on, Alana and Hazel are going to be asking themselves a lot of fruitless questions. Mm. Maybe if um, Marco and Alana had made the decision to go to Jetsam, they would have ended up on Jetsam sooner and yeah. would have built, beat Ianth and the Will there. And maybe they would be safe living on Jetsam after the transubstantiation and Marco would still be alive. And getting beyond those fruitless questions is part of the grieving process that everyone goes to. Yeah, one of the derailers is that if only thinking. If yeah. only Marco ha had not chosen to live by that principle, maybe he would still be alive today. If only maybe. I had convinced my grandfather to give up smoking when I was a child, he would have not passed due to lung cancer, you know? All we can do is move forward from the point of the decision. Yeah, and a big decision that gets made towards the end of the penultimate issue is the decision made by the will, because Marco, when he's looking for Squire, stumbles upon... Sir Robot selling out Marco's family to the will. And Marco tries to convince um, uh, the will, you know, like, hey, hold on, we can, we can, we can figure this all out. Just don't harm Sir Robot. Let's, let's, I'll come with you. All right, leave my family. Don't harm Sir Robot. I'll come with you. We'll figure this out. And the will's decision is pass. I pass on that. And he rips off Sir Robot's head in one mighty swing. I want to dwell on that moment for a second because I think that Sir Robot, he is at such a low at this point. His last conversation with Squire was yes. ended in him with his hands around Squire, Squire's neck. a violent act, which he then also confesses to Alana, and Alana is appalled by. And she goes to fight him, and Marco stands up for him in that moment, going like, it would be better when we look for Squire for All Sir Robot us. to be conscious, yeah. right? So that we have one more person to look. And here he goes once again, putting his neck out for Sir Robot, and Sir Robot goes like, are you sure you want to do this? I literally was giving over your family. And Marco replies, but I never believe anything you say anyway. So <laughs> yeah. I think that the fact that Marco is still willing to give Sir Robot the benefit of the doubt touches Sir Robot so deeply. The last image yeah. of his face is a flower in the wind losing a petal. Such like a beautiful, peaceful thought yeah. where he ends his life with having hope and 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 seeing somebody not not he not only has hope he 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 sees somebody who's been an enemy to him in the past extend you know his hand a truly, to help him a truly selfless act yeah but the will cannot get past his rage and hatred for what happened to the stock and you know he elects he decides 
he chooses violence. And Lisa, you knew that this volume was going to end with Marco's death, but you did not know that Sir Robot was going to die. Although you did speak to me off mic where before you got to this volume, you were kind of thinking like things were not going to go well for Sir Robot. What was your reaction to this death in the penultimate issue? The foreshadowing that made me think that maybe Sir Robot was going to die was... Hazel narrator saying that Squire would ultimately become her brother. Right. But then this, there is a certain math that I feel like we readers, <laughs> we experiencers of literature do. Right. Where we go, okay, this is how many deaths yeah. a writer is going to do. Like, yeah, so deploy. you might go, like, well, Marco is definitely the one who dies in this. So. All other characters are de facto safe. Yeah, like Doth can't die. Oh, Doth dies. Well, okay, then Doth dies, then Marco's gonna die. Well, so Sir Robot's safe. Right, which is not something we do in real life. Right. Like, that is like, um, that is just the kind of math you do with the suspension yes. of disbelief. Yes, yes. But I think that this goes back to um, this story saga wanting to have a real conversation about grief. And for there to be a real conversation about grief, there has to be shock. And there has to be a sense of, this is not fair. Mm -hmm. This math does not work out for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so it were you uh, narratively happy? Were you, like, like, what was your emotional reaction to it? I was touched. I really did find it to be a beautiful scene. And I would have loved for Sir Robot to have the opportunity to redeem himself. Of course, I want to see every character end happy. I would love to see the will end happy. But I do think that that last moment with Marco did fill that void for me mm. did satisfy that, okay, he at least through Marco's kindness died believing that there is goodness in the world. So on this read for me, read, you know, that sequence, experiencing that final sequence for Sir Robot and actually experiencing you describe it just now. For me, when Marco extends the chance that Sir Robot wasn't actually, uh, you know, selling out his family. When he gives Sir Robot the benefit of doubt, by Marco giving Sir Robot the benefit of the doubt, the reader, me, I give Sir Robot the benefit of the doubt. And the first time I read that, I went, oh, Robot, back to your old ways. This time, I, like, in my head canon, he was never going to do what he looked like he was going to do. I think that he could have done it or not done it. I think that in that moment, he was just trying to survive that moment. Sure. And he goes like, hey, I'm willing to give you Hazel. And I'll say that now. And then when I'm out of this life or death situation, I will then recalculate. And I was also thinking about what if Alana had arrived before Sir Robot. Oh man, he'd be screwed. Yeah, 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 yeah. He would be so screwed. Yeah, yeah. Because Alana does not live by the nonviolent principle. Right. She doesn't mind defaulting to it, 
but she's never fully bought in, which makes me wonder now, after Marco, where is their familial stance going to be on that principle? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and we're three issues in, and I, I don't think we can necessarily answer that question yet. Well, she, like three issues in, she's clearly made a lot of compromises. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, all right. Uh, so the final issue, Saga 54, is a fight issue, and it reads very quickly. Like this whole volume reads quickly, but this final issue, you are at Marco's death before you know what happened. Chapter 54 opens with Hazel narrator explaining that Marco was one of those people who was hit as a kid with caveats, like only when he deserved it and never that hard. Like, mm -hmm. so it was always a decision to spank. It wasn't like a spanking out of anger. Mm -hmm. That was actually how I was raised. Mm -hmm. That I, I was like, generally the way we like ex talk about it now is like we were swatted. Mm -hmm. Like, and um, I do sometimes wonder, like, cause I can think of four instances where I have hit another person. Uh -huh. um, one time it was to teach a lesson. Two times it was out of comedy. <laughs> and one time it was out of anger. And that was when I hit a kid in the head with a rake and he ended up having to go get stitches. Uh -huh. And um, it wasn't a decision where I'm like, I'm going to hurt this kid. I want to send this kid to a hospital. It was more like, I'm going to teach him not to bully me. Mm -hmm. and, and you did. And and he did, he did well he did again tease me about it in high school and he says like the reason I'm doing so poorly in school is because I was hit in the head with a rake uh, <laughs> and I do wonder I do wonder oh, if I thought that hitting someone was a solution to a conflict because, because I was swatted. swatted and you know, like, I don't know. And, and it was something that stopped by the time, like, like I would love to discuss with my little brother, mm. like, does he remember getting swatted? Mm. I don't know. Um, but anyway, but they agreed in the raising of Hazel, they would never right. hit Hazel. Underneath that narration, we have the conflict between the Will and Marco playing out. So the Will's lance has been shorting and he goes to kill Marco with it and it doesn't work. And Marco sees that the Will had made the decision to kill him and he goes like totally red. Fiona yeah. Staples replaces the background with just blood red. He hits 10. And Marco begins choking the will. And then we get this montage of the will remembering all of the times that he has been choked. They fly off the cliff. Marco tackles the will. They fly off the cliff and they crash into Eont's jellyfish spaceship. And while the will is being choked, he reaches for the controller that runs the ship and he launches. And from the shore, Alana, because of their engagement ring that makes them like psychically linked, she can feel Marco leaving. And is in danger. There is some fisticuffs. Uh, Marco chokes the will eventually unconscious and he goes to behead the will using that shield 
that he got on Gardenia. But when he sees that the will is unconscious, he decides not to. And he goes to look at the window at Jetsum getting smaller and smaller. And while his back is turned, the will stabs him through the heart. And of course, that's done on a page turn. It's a full page impaling. And then the next page is what? It's one, two, three, four, five, five panels of Marco succumbing to his wound, tumbling to the ground, looking up at the ceiling and having one last vision. A memory actually from Jetsum where Hazel is building a sandcastle on the beach and she just calls out like, Daddy, I love you. And he goes like, I love you too. And it's clear that she is looking for comfort for something. That's actually something I do a lot when I'm feeling like some kind of anxiety. Like I'll just like go like, Brad, I love you. You're great. And Brad's <laughs> like, what are you thinking about? But um, she asks about the day that she was born and um, she goes like, did mommy really number two all <laughs> over you? And he goes like, mommy didn't just number two on me. She number twoed on everything. <laughs> and Hazel goes like, and it was the happiest moment of your life. And I love how that's how she contextualizes it because mm. shit got like, number two getting all over everything is in most cases a <laughs> terrible situation. Uh -huh. and, but like the idea that that can happen and you can still be the happiest you've ever been in your life, like to a child, like that must be so tremendously happy. Revelatory. It, it, the idea of it has to be revelatory for Hazel. And then Hazel goes like, does that mean that I will never, ever, ever be the most happy you can ever be. And he's like, what are you even talking about? And she goes like, I know that I never want to have kids. And he's like, are you sure you, I mean, why are you even, you're like 10. Like, why are you thinking about that right now? And she goes like, I just kind of know. Like, I am a person who has also like, kind of al always known that she didn't want to have kids. Mm -hmm. like." I never played with like babies as a kid. I would always play with like uh, stuffed animals mm -hmm. and they were always my peers. Like I was never <laughs> like, I'm the parent. Occasionally I was the teacher, but I was never like, I'm the parent and you're my kid. It was always like, you're a teenager and I'm a teenager and we're gonna be teenagers forever. And, that, <laughs> and I've really accomplished that. Um, <laughs> but uh, she says like, um, I'm glad you made me and I recognize what a tremendous sacrifice that that, that means, but are you going to be mad if I don't in turn continue that legacy and make more children? And he goes like, the only, to me, the only thing that matters is that you continue to be kind. Like Brad is watching my face because I am starting to cry. <laughs> but like, so to him, legacy doesn't necessarily just mean children. Like the, the important thing is that you make something and you create something. And I think about that um, Harvard study about the cascade of cooperation. And that's really what Marco wants to see in the world. He wants to see his child be kind and in turn help other people be kind to create the kind of change that I think that would be really meaningful to Marco as a person. 
Yeah. And I think, um, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but in the three issues that follow this one, we see Hazel take the first steps in possibly creating something else, not necessarily a life, a child, but taking the first steps on her journey to creation. And and her choice, her her life's work is actually, I think, foreshadowed. Um, By the existence this, of this comic. In the previous issue, when, when, oh. uh, when um, Squire is missing, she begins making up a song to herself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about finding Squire. So we see her using music and creating music as a sort of coping mechanism, which then I started kind of rolling the foreshadowing back and going back when she was in prison with her grandmother, Mm -hmm. like the one thing she remembered about her mother was that her mother was a bad singer. So we know from that point that Hazel has taste. And taste is really the beginning of creativity. Like, I know what I don't want to hear, and what I don't want to hear is my mom singing. And then also, the thing that she remembers specifically about Isabel is her good night song. And she remembers all of the words to the good night song from the beginning to the end, which she sings to her, you know, quote unquote, brother. Right. And we have Saga the comic, her narration as this work where she is connecting all those dots and we're playing catch up on those dots being created uh, or being connected. And we are seeing that she is possibly telling her parents' story Mm -hmm. and her parents' story will continue beyond her and is also part of the creation act. We're also discovering music in these three issues after this one too. Oh, okay. So we're talking about slightly different things. No, I I think we're talking about two separate things, but but both things are creation. Yeah. I think she's moving towards being a musician, but I also see her creating a narrative identity for her family. Yes. She sees the sacrifices that her parents made for her to continue. She's folded that into her story of transformation, growth, and continuation. And we actually get this reflected in the narration um, where she says, like, I. she goes back to that thing of, like, I started out as an idea. Mm-hmm, and, um, like, and... Thanks to my parents, I get to grow old. And not everybody does. And not everybody does. And then we see Marco dead on the floor. Yeah. And, you know, another thing I was thinking about while revisiting this issue is earlier on in Saga, and I can't remember what issue, she refers to her present self, Hazel narrator's present self, as nobody particularly special, you know, and... I, I I think what ultimately makes Hazel special is the art that she will create as a musician, hopefully, and the telling of her parents' story. I think that it's interesting, like, her going like, I never became particularly famous, but here I am telling this story. And, I, I, like, I go back to Marco working on the novel and Alana going like, are you doing this for 
extrinsic motivation? Are you doing this to publish it? And he goes, no, I'm doing this for intrinsic motivation. Mm. This is, I, I need to tell the story because I need to create something that I believe in. But I'm wondering if she also has her mother's idea of wanting this thing to be read. And could we be reading the final document that gets out into the world and lets the universe know that Hazel exists? Could that be the climax of issue 108? We don't. Well, I sure as hell want to keep reading yes. so I can find out. I'm I we're halfway there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 so you want to keep reading Lisa. We we have read something that um forever shifts our idea of what we thought Saga was going to be. You were talking about how in the fadeaway arc on Gardenia this this is not what you signed up for. And I was, I and I had quit. And you had quit. And you only came back when we made Marco and Alana a couple on Comic Book Couples Counseling. And now you've continued reading. Vol, you know, this recent arc is volumes five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And Saga is certainly not what you thought it was when you read those first six issues and you're still excited by it? Are you nervous by it? Like you've read the three issues that come after this. Are you satisfied by those three issues? Of course I'm not. My expectations <laughs> were so high. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And I there was so much I wanted to see. I wanted to grieve Marco. I wanted to see Alana's reaction. And of course, the narrative... Um, subverts that expectation, leaving me wanting. Yeah. But like one thing I've learned about Saga is like every other time I've held on, I'm I'm grateful that I did. Yeah. Do I think that will always be the case? I don't know. But it goes back to the probability thing of. Is it worth the gamble of me de being disappointed? Yeah. And right now I'm saying yes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I'm right there with you. Uh, the three issues um, that come after this one, you know, we have, of course, another significant time jump. We aren't allowed to grieve. Uh, and, and like the way that those issues really seal the deal that Marco is dead. Like, you know, there was like a part of me when I picked up issue 55, uh, oh, maybe Marco is alive and maybe this is all some joke. Although I never really believed that, but I had like that glimmer of hope. But then when we see in issue 55, spoilers for issue 55, Gwendolyn in the will having sex next to the skull of Marco, like that is Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples saying, He's dead. He is dead. And it is so cruel. There's so much cruelty in the issues that follow issue 54. And I'm struggling with what I would call a mean-spirited nature, which has been present <laughs> since almost the beginning of Saga with where we are now, knowing that it is the halfway point. And if someone were to jump ship and say like, I, this is not what I wanted. I'm out of here. I cannot blame that person for stopping reading Saga. I totally understand it. And while I am not necessarily, quote unquote, enjoying the return of Saga, I have fallen so in love with these characters that are still here, uh, mainly Hazel and Alana. And I have a faith in the storytellers, Fiona Staples and Brian K. Vaughn, that I'm going to continue reading. Now, that might change, you know, uh, but 
I'm definitely going to give it this volume, whether it's a, a, a satisfying volume or not, the volume 10. And I'll probably give it another volume after that. And maybe I'll reevaluate if I want to keep on going. But I have invested so much time. And there is no other couple that we have covered on Comic Book Couples Counseling that we have spent this amount of time discussing. In fact, this episode is our longest episode we've ever oh, really? done. <laughs> and I, 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 I am in it till probably issue 108. Something really really objectionable would have to happen for me to go away. And that's possible because there's been so many objectionable, problematic things in this book. And the pattern that Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples have developed of like, here's happiness, here's cruelty, here's happiness, here's cruelty. I'm so aware of it now. I'm also um, skeptical of it too. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm in love. I'm in love with these characters. I think that there is one promise that we can make right now to our comic book couples counseling listeners out there. And that <laughs> is we will never hate read or hate cover yeah. anything. If if at some point we go like, okay, Saga is no longer for us, we will not cover it on the podcast because that's not what we're here to do. Yeah, and so I think what we are going to do, uh, you know, let's go back to that conversation we were having at the start of this episode regarding the three issues. I feel like we don't really want to cover them now. Mm -mm. But I think volume 10 would be a good episode. It won't be a Marco and Alana episode. I think we are done discussing Marco and Alana as a proactive couple. Okay. But I think we can cover Saga volume 10 as a single episode when it comes out in October. Sure. Yeah. Oh, that was easy. That was sure. easy to convince. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then... I will put out there that if I hate it, I'm not going to want to talk about it. Well, and that's and fair, fair, fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're not making a promise like in October there will be a Saga Volume 10 CBCC episode. Um, we will <laughs> revisit that yeah. when those issues finally come out. Yeah. So what, we've got like three more issues until that arc is concluded. That's a lot. A lot's got to happen for me to be like, yeah, that saga is back, baby. <laughs> uh, but I'm also excited that saga is back, baby. And I'm very happy that we have reached somewhat the conclusion of our Marco and Alana episode, Lisa. Anything yeah. else? Is there anything else we need to cover? Uh, well, obviously, we have to cover what we have learned and sure, what sure, are sure, our sure. takeaways. But before that, can I just put a pin in, not put a pin in, but like kind of button up my hitting a kid in the rake, in the head with a rake story. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. We need to know the details, Lisa. Um, well, I think that I need to contextualize it by saying I was in third grade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was a smallish child. I did definitely know better. Like, uh -huh. I knew once I did it, in a, like, I went red, and in an instant, I made a terrible decision. You did, it, it was like the incident with Squire and Hazel. Yeah, yeah, and um, I did get spanked. For okay. doing that. Okay. And, um, but not hard. And I did deserve it. Um, caveats. Um, whatever. Um, but the conclusion of that story was actually my parents taking me to that kid's house mm. to apologize. Oh, I know this story. And I went and, and I apologized and said I was sorry that it happened. And I was crying as I was apologizing. I felt terrible. And then his parents said something really curious to me. And that was, he probably had it coming. Oof. 
which I, I think speaks to our culture of violence, mm. you know, where the idea that he was a grade ahead of me, that a fourth grader could have it coming, mm. that a third grader lash out at him with a weapon. Um, it's interesting, Lisa. And I, and I think that it's something that I have, like, kind of been, like, there was a time, a long time, up into adulthood, where I would not even talk about this incident. Uh -huh. um, I'm still extremely ashamed of what I did. Mm -hmm. But at, at the same time, like, I cannot put myself mentally back in the head of that third grader who got upset. Yeah, you gotta forgive that third grader. Though uh -huh. it was, uh, yeah, uh, I guess I don't need to give any uh, more details, but it was something like triggering my upholder tendency. Clearly. where We were playing a game oh. and I had rules to the game. And he broke the rules. And they were breaking, like, and they were laughing at me. And so, like, so I was, I was like being bullied and I got upset. You know, the only time I've ever been in a fight, I was a little bit older than you, fifth grade. Uh -huh. uh, I won't name the kid's name, but it's a name that's always burned in my head. The one big fight I ever got into was on the schoolyard in recess. We got into a fist fight and it, a fist fight that became like a tackle, you know, wrestling match on the ground. And we didn't like severely hurt each other. Like no weapons were used like a rake. Um, but I was taken to the principal's office afterwards and I was the one who lashed out first. I threw the first punch and the principal told me he had it coming. Yeah, that's messed up. It's interesting. Yeah, interesting. that's really messed up. He did have it coming though. He was bullying me. <laughs> <laughs> that's my perspective on it. He probably thinks the exact same thing. So huh. well, how did he do in high school? What did he keep up or did you do you know, sustain well, injuries? This was <laughs> what you know, my dad was in the Navy and so we were traveling a lot. So I only spent one year in fifth grade. Uh -huh. So I left that school at the end of that year and I never saw that kid ever again. Oh, so. yeah, interesting. So, uh, Brad, yeah. do you have any takeaways from How to Be Sad or, or from our conversation about Saga this session? I, I, I mean, obviously I have takeaways from How to Be Sad. I think How to Be Sad has been one of the more interesting books that we have covered on the podcast. Um, I love the idea of your grief being a monument to the person that you have lost. And I think that is something that I will be holding on to for some time to come. I mean, you know, as we get older, our parents get older and my worries around my parents intensify. Um, and I now have friends who have lost their parents and I see the pain that that causes them. Um, and, and, and I, I think the idea of removing shame from feeling sadness is essential and we should work on that as a culture. So I, I, I like, I, I got a lot out of Helen Russell and, I, and, and I think it was a great pairing with Saga, a comic that has so much sadness to it. Um, what have I learned about myself and my relationship with you from Marco and Alana? I don't like... I don't know if I could just put it into a sentence, mm. right? Uh, their, their relationship um, is defined by its tumultuous nature, which I think all relationships are defined by the tumultuous nature. And, and I, I've never been one to go like, oh boy, you know, a marriage is hard work. Yeah. I hate that. I'm not saying a marriage is a hard work. Um, but I do think that all relationships have those peaks and valleys and the ones that survive those peaks and valleys are the ones that have 
the most open communication and recognize how the partner completes something that is missing. Mm. And, you know, Marco, uh, it's the Jerry Maguire thing. You complete me. Marco is completed by his relationship with Alana and Hazel. And Hazel is completed by her relationship with her father. Alana is completed by her relationship with Marco. And uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think like to just to go off of the completed idea is um, because of those relationships, they felt like they could be better people. Where I think sometimes... And they strive to be better because of the relationship. Exactly. I feel like sometimes when you're in a lower stakes conflict, um, you go like, well, I would rather stay the same and lose this relationship. Where I think that Marco and Alana repeatedly go like, well, I would rather change and keep the relationship than stay true to myself. Like, I hate, like, I'm going to use another platitude that I hate. Like, would you rather be right or would you rather be married? Uh-huh. Like, and I think that they, um, again and again, have have chosen the relationship over staying the same. This is what you learn about Marco and Alana, is that their evolutions are happening because they want to change. Like, mm-hmm. Marco is changing because he is changing himself. He is not changing Alana. And Alana is changing because Alana is changing herself. She's not changing Marco. They're not trying to change each other. They're trying to change themselves. Mm. And I think that's something that you really discover when you are in a union. Yeah. Like, you, like I want to change myself because I want Lisa to be proud of me, you know? Yeah, I think another thing that we didn't talk about a lot is how Alana and Marco would talk openly in front of Hazel about mm. conflicting principles. Mm. Mm. And I think that the other adult figures around Hazel who who would take, whenever they were with Hazel, they would always take it upon themselves to impart part of their wisdom to her as well. Even when they resisted it, like Petrichor, right? Like, I'm not going to talk to you about this stuff, child, but always ends up talking about the adult stuff with the child. I think that because of the nature of Marco and Alana's relationship with Hazel and how they didn't shy away from adult conversations in front of her, um, and wanted to impart the best of themselves to her. Mm. These other people were also inspired to impart the best parts of themselves mm. that mm-hmm. they've learned from their journeys to Hazel, which has turned out to, th- has resulted in this really thoughtful, really vulnerable, really considerate mm. individual. So what I am now seeing Saga as it is the story of Hazel and how all these people contribute to what Hazel becomes. And, you know, talking about in, internal change, internal change, uh, but also as a result of outside factors. So if that is the truth, Alana could go. I, oh, oh, I, you know, I used to think like, you know, when 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 Marco first died, I was like, oh, so this is going to be a mother and daughter story going forward. 
And in the three-year process of thinking about that, yeah, I don't think Alana's uh, safe from Brian K. Vaughn and mm. Fiona Staples. I don't. I think Hazel's safe. Yes. I mean, I think there is a real asshole move that could happen <laughs> where Brian K. Vaughn also kills Hazel and Hazel is a specter a la Isabel. But I don't, I like, I don't believe that in my heart. I think the line that makes me go like, that probably will not happen is the fact that she says that she gets to grow old, which I think is a right. very specific thing. I don't think that she would say that Isabel, even though she lived, you know, decades yeah. and decades and decades, I don't think that she would ever say, I got to grow old. Right, I think right. she stayed a teenager. So if, if if Hazel dies in issue 108 and she's like 25. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think what we're going to get is... So uh, we've had the first 10 years of Hazel's life in issues one through 54. And I would like to see issues 55 through 108 take her to her 20s. Yeah. Like, I'd really like to see an adult Hazel uh, for a significant amount of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm excited by Saga, but I also recognize that Saga tortures me and um, makes me anxious and uncomfortable frequently. Um, just to put a a button on how to be sad, um, when I created my notes for this particular book, I, I've stated this in the past, that I really did try to keep it to the action items. Mm -hmm. I took a lot of the memoir-type material out of it. Mm -hmm. I think that maybe in a way that would have actually offended Helen Russell. I have no idea. Like we, Of course, I did not consult with her at all. Right. I'm just like going off, you know, the cuff. But another issue that I kind of took out of the conversation about how to be sad um, was uh, some of her alarmist yeah. kind of judgmental things that I felt like she was saying about um, things like going to therapy or taking SSRIs. Like, I, I think that she's saying that, like, in a lot of different chapters, she would say, like, if it wasn't for anti-sadness culture and my and my being raised in an anti-sadness culture, maybe I wouldn't have had an eating disorder. Maybe I wouldn't have had anxiety. Maybe no one would have an eating disorder. Maybe no one would have anxiety. Yeah, it's a pretty big claim. And, and to me, like... I have a quote that I've pulled that I think is pretty indicative of my, my personal issues with How to Be Sad, if you'll just indulge me. Sure. It's not long, but here's the quote. Um, I'm quoting Helen Russell. The goal is to feel good sad, helpful sad, and change prompting sad, and to give ourselves a fighting chance of stopping normal, healthy sadness from tipping over into something more serious. So I do agree that when we are sad, we do want to be good sad, helpful sad, change prompting sad. But like, I think that we can do that while taking out the kind of like, and if you do sadness wrong, you're gonna, you're going to fall into these pitfalls. Um, like to me, like this foreboding or else hanging over the narrative, to me comes across as a little bit judgmental. Sure. If you don't know this listener, uh, every time we pick a self-help book, that is not us endorsing that self-help book in whole. That is us using that self-help book to 
uh, guide us through the couple that we are in session with. Um, and so we can read something and go like, oh, we, we don't like all of this. We're going to pick and choose. Yeah. And I mean, and that's the same with like, uh, you know, Saga. Like yeah. we'll read something in Saga and we go like, we don't necessarily agree with that, but we'll take from that. Yeah. Like what we want to learn. Like, so from How to Be Sad, I am taking the idea of destigmatizing feeling sad and looking into the research that supports feeling all of your feelings. But to me, I'm just going to go like, now I have this many more tools in my toolkit. I have forest bathing in my toolkit. I have telling my story in my toolkit, you know? Um, Also, like, uh, often I tout, like, I need a book with citations, you know? (laughs) And to me, I I think she includes a ton of citations in this book, but I also don't get the impression that she has done the background research on each of the studies that she has cited. And I'll just use one example that was kind of a red flag to me, could very well mean nothing, but do you remember from the beginning of the episode, the study where uh, music was played for depressive and non-depressive participants. Okay, so she used two songs, actually, as the examples of the sad songs. One of them was Barber's Adagio for Strings, which was a piece that I'm very familiar with. But then there was another piece that she said in her book that I had never heard of. So I went to research that song, and I couldn't find it. Mm. And I was like, but all I could find was articles that was citing that were citing that same study. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, why can't I find on all of the internet this one song? And it's because the original published study that was cited by Helen Russell and all of these other people on the internet misspelled the composer's name. So I'm wondering why between her researching that paper and publishing her book, that correction was not made. Ah, I see. So, like, to me, that just goes like, uh, maybe we're not checking our work in every single instance, which she's not an expert. This is something she's doing for her own edification, but at the same time, she's making conclusions for all of culture. So, um, so yeah, just a little food for thought. Yeah, and I would extend that food for thought to everyone listening uh, when you are hearing us babble on on Comic Book Couples Counseling that we're not experts, which is why we go to love experts in the first place. And they're not always uh, experts. We're just doing the best that we can, just like Helen Russell. Though, if you want a comic book podcast with an actual expert, you can listen to Capes on the Couch. Just throwing that out there. Oh, well, look at that. A plug at the very end for Capes on the Couch. Lisa just guested on it as Doreen on their 150th episode. And I was honored to do so. And one of the hosts of that show is an actual psychiatrist, which gives uh, another layer to um, character analysis, to say the least. It's a great show. It Um, is. All right. I think that is going to do it for us. Thank you, everyone, hanging out with Brad and Lisa, talking Marco and Alana and how to be sad. If you did reach the end of this episode and had a good time, please share this episode with your friends. We're really proud of our Marco and Alana series. 
um, it, you know, percentage wise, it takes up a good chunk of what we do here on the podcast. So if we could get as many people on the planet to listen to this episode as possible, uh, we would be super grateful for that. Um, how do we end these episodes normally, Lisa? We usually say what's coming up next week. Oh, right. Oh my goodness. Everyone, everyone, everyone. We have a massive epic creator corner with cartoonist Jeff Smith, the creator of Bone, Razzle, and the new series Tukey, Volumes 1 and 2. Frankly, I cannot believe that Jeff Smith agreed to come onto our show, and it's honestly a dream come true. We've already had this conversation. It's a delightful conversation. If you have not read Tukey Volume 1, I would suggest that you do so. It is currently available in paperback as well as digital. It's a delightful light. That being said, it is a spoiler-free conversation. So if you are on the Tukey fence, we will just lightly tap you over with this conversation. We are, but I do think like you're going to enjoy the conversation even more if you have read Tukey Volume One. You'll uh, enjoy life more. Yeah, like I don't want to, you know, tell anyone not to listen to the podcast because they haven't read a comic. But guys, go get Tukey, and then Tukey Volume Two really kicks it up a notch. Love these comics that Jeff is putting out. And after that, we will be starting our next couple series. Yes. And it'll be Angela and Sarah. Oh, yeah. Much, much loved uh, couple amongst our listeners. A couple that people have been asking us to cover since the very first year of Comic Book Couples Counseling. Specifically Jamie and Max. Yes. It's finally happening. And uh, yeah, I think it's a good couple and it might roll right into another Asgardian couple. We'll just put that out there right now. A lot of good comics conversation in your future. Okay, Brad, um, can we wrap this up? Since revisiting Saga Chapter 50, there is some stuff I'd like to try. <laughs> uh, you don't have wigs. <laughs> yeah, well, I imagine with some kind of a... Strap. Uh, oh, no, no, we don't have straps. Also, I don't have muscles. <laughs> so where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? <laughs> you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you, no can join, <laughs> you can join our Patreon. Keep in mind, it's not P, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. Oh boy, oh boy. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Keep in mind that all of the activities I've listed can be done while pro while processing our sadness. <laughs>